Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host, Richie Plush. Hey, everybody, this is Richie Plush, your host for this week's episode from All Autism Talk, a podcast brought to you by the Learn Behavioral Network, a leading provider of ABA services across the country. Uh, I've been really enjoying having these great conversations with very talented folks, and this week in particular really stood out to me. It was a, it was a conversation about co-occurring diagnoses, particularly with um, children with autism that are teenagers and young adults. And the conversation really covered a lot of topics, including anxiety, depression, and some gender identity issues, which I thought was really telling for some of what our teens are going through these days. And our guests this week were Dr. Susan White, who is a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Alabama, where she directs the Center for Youth Development and Intervention. And also Dr. Carla Mazewski, who is an associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. Her current studies take a lifespan approach with an emphasis on adolescence and the transition into adulthood. And they are two of the editors for the Oxford Handbook of Autism and Co-Occurring Psychiatric Conditions. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are here with Dr. Susan White and Dr. Carla Mazewski. Uh, I appreciate you both for being here. Uh, Thanks for giving us some of your time. My pleasure. So you both uh, co-edited the Oxford Handbook of Autism and Co-Occurring Psychiatric Conditions. Uh, What an important topic for families and clinicians, I think. What was the catalyst for pulling this together? What what caused that for you? I was just reviewing the proposal. So we started this back in about October of 2017. So it's been about, what is that, two and a half years, um, and it finally gets to print um, in two weeks. So it's been a labor of love and a very long labor um, <laughs> uh, for any of the mothers out there. But um, it's what Carla and I, as well as our third co-editor, uh, Brenna Maddox, um, who can't join us today, we've all been very interested in this topic of psychiatric comorbidity and autism for, I would say, all of our professional careers, um, recognizing um, as clinicians um how common psychiatric comorbidity is, and I would say even more important than that, how impairing it is on the kids, the teenagers, um, the, the person who is diagnosed, as well as his whole family. Um, and I can get into more detail as you want, but to, to boil that down, I think the real impetus is there has been no other compendium, no other um, comprehensive book published to date that really speaks to this issue across uh co-occurring diagnoses it's so i mean it's so important for families i i I hear families as their you know children turn into teenagers they're facing some of the challenges that have come up in your book between you know anxiety or gender identity issues or you know any of those depression whatever it may be um i'm glad that there finally is a tool for families i'm glad that there's something for them to look to I think one of the other reasons we were able to get this done finally now is that there is this growing appreciation that um, mental health is really critical to understanding outcomes and supporting people on the autism spectrum. And and in the past decade, I would say, I don't know if you agree, Susan, but there's really been an uptick in research on this topic. 
And so one of the things we really tried to do, too, is to bring together, like, the best, most up-to-date evidence out there. That's fantastic. You know, I I imagine families are looking to Google or Bing or wherever it is that they're looking for information, which certainly is not a bad place, but we also don't know what they're going to find or what has research behind it. So what was the process that you guys went through to create this book? And You pulled from a lot of different resources and from a lot of different research professionals. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I can take a stab at it, but first, Richie, I just want to thank you for commenting on that because I think um, a lot of clinicians and scientists lament about how easily accessible dangerous information is on the Internet, meaning um, a lot of the things that pop up on initial searches aren't based in the research. Um, and, and that's really scary for parents and, and for people who are producing the research. And I think that there's this well-known implementation cliff and when we think about why resources like this are needed, it's exactly that. Because although, you know, our target audience in this handbook isn't parents, it's really built for um, scientists and primarily clinicians. Mm-hmm. What the goal is, what our hope is, is that it helps clinicians who might not even specialize in working with clients who have autism to consider um, treating those individuals, or for researchers, uh, you know, to pull together, to synthesize this large, as Carla indicated, this growing body of research. So thank you for commenting on that, because I get that a lot from parents, and I get it as as a parent myself. It's like, yeah, when you find out something about your child, that's what everybody does now is, okay, what can I Google about this? But, But that's not always what's based in the research. Yeah, just just because research is available doesn't mean all research is created equally, right? Um, and, I, and I appreciate what you're saying, and, and you're right. Clinicians need to know because they're also a tool for families. And you know, I think about when I'm going into a home and a family says to me, we're having issues with fill in the blank, right? We're having issues with you know picky eating. We're having issues with anxiety. We're having issues with going into new places, you know, they're coming to me almost secondary, right? They're coming to me after they've done some Google searches and maybe after they've talked to their friends or their immediate family. But for some people, that's where it stops. Um, and so I think clinicians have to own that responsibility of making sure they're educated on about as many topics as they can be. Um, I may not have all the answers. Certainly, I don't have answers about post-traumatic stress disorder, but I need to know where to send families to get good quality information. So when you asked about how we got started, I think one of the things we did first sit and think about was who should we ask to write these chapters. So our goal was to really reach out to the people who are doing the frontline research in each of the areas that we covered in the handbook so that it would be, um, you know, words words of wisdom from the experts. And I imagine that they were probably eager to participate and eager to support. I, I would say so. I, uh, I'm laughing because, um, you know, sometimes it's not easy to get academics to uh, meet deadlines <laughs> and, to, <laughs> and to write chapters and such. But this one would actually a joy to read, I think, Richie, for exactly that reason, because um, people really did respect and agree, wow, there is such a need for this. Um, so, yeah, I, I just to echo what Carla is saying, this is – we're the editors, so we're kind of like bringing voice to it, 
but we have such an amazing group of contributing authors on this. It's like that that's where the real interesting stuff is coming from. It's fantastic. And so as as the editors, you got to read everything, you got to hear from their from the different authors' voices. Um are there trends that you're seeing in this research? That's that's an interesting question. Um I don't know in terms of trends. I think there are some trends that seem like people are beginning to think about what are some of the underlying mechanisms that are contributing to these high rates of mental health, especially because we're seeing kids who present with symptoms and signs of multiple different disorders. Is there something that's underlying that that we can target that would help them um, rather than like a specific treatment for every um, every specific thing? Um, but Otherwise, in term, I think there's some major differences that we're seeing across disorders and across the chapters just in terms of how much we know, whereas some things have gotten a lot of attention, like anxiety, and you brought up PTSD, which is related to anxiety, obviously, but, but in, in that case, um, we still know very little, and it's only recently been getting more research attention. Um, so some trends, I would say, are not across all topics that we see, just because there's there's a pretty big discrepancy still in in how far along the field is in our knowledge. That's interesting that you know they're they're really interconnected, but in some ways, according to research, they're kind of separate. And and I think getting separate attention certainly with the research that's that's interesting. Could you? I just want to add one thing onto what Carla was saying. I think that one common thread across these chapters, so the chapters are topically focused on given problem areas or diagnoses, and um. As, as a reader of the <clears throat> as a reader of the handbook would see, um, I would say the vast majority of treatment research that's been done for fill in the blank disorder in people with autism has been a translation of what's been done in people without autism, and that's not a critical comment, but I find it striking given how much work has been done on etiology specifically for ASD, and we need to have bottom-up research to try to understand, as Carla indicated, these processes that are giving rise to so much pathology and comorbidity. In other words, it's, it's sometimes we use what we have and modify that. We adapt it for a client with autism, but, but on the flip side, we also need to be thinking about how do we target the mechanism or mechanisms that's giving rise to to co-occurring depression and whatever else there might be. I would say the other thing that I just want to bring up in terms of like what stood out to us in, in the reading all of these great chapters was um, the frequency with which medications are used off-label. Um, and uh, it's, it's such an understudied and desperately in need area of research in terms of uh, the, the medication uh, for these co-occurring disorders. That's a really good point. Our our chapter on psychopharmacology, I I remember after reading it for the first time, I just said to to Susan and Brenna, this is a must read for all all psychiatrists because it is somewhat sobering how much medication is used versus um what we know. And it's often helpful, but um I think there's a lot of background information that people really need to keep in mind. What what is what's some of that background information? What are some things that people should keep in mind as they're getting into medications and things like that? 
Well, side effect profiles are different in kids with autism. And um, Brian King and his co-authors in that chapter that she's referencing really do a nice job of describing that. Um, it, there's also this, this these are heavy-duty medications. I mean, we're mostly talking about atypical antipsychotics that have um, a side effect profile in anybody that would use them. But in the ASD, they're often being used long-term. And we, we they're... In my opinion, Carla, maybe you disagree with this. There hasn't been sufficient research to know long-term use kind of sustained effect profile. Um, and then this issue of polypharmacy, which she was indicating, um, it, it's often a cocktail. It's not one medication. And then do we know enough about how those medications interact and what those side effects are, what the long-term ramifications are, you know, all of what you're describing? We should preface this probably with we aren't psychiatrists. We're clinical psychologists. So this is, of course, you know, our perspective. And so... Um, take that for what it's worth, I guess. Yeah, I also was thinking, I don't want it to come off like we're anti-medication. I think there, there's a good reason that medications are used so frequently. Um, it's just it's really important to keep in mind what the evidence is and, and all those factors that we don't know so that psychiatrists and physicians can be appropriately monitoring and really think about when it's, when it's necessary to prescribe. That's really thought. I mean, that's really thoughtful. I think that's, you know, none of us are prescribing medication, so certainly, you know, if you're listening, make sure you're following up with your doctors or whomever it is that's giving you these medications, and make sure you're having that conversation. Um, and also, if you're a clinician, make sure that you're cautious about some of the recommendations you're making to families, um, so that they're not going and asking for things without having the background information on it and things like that. One of the things I noticed about this book was, uh, so when I opened it and I looked at the table of contents, the first thing I said was, oh, I'm going to start with this chapter. And then I said, oh, no, I'm going to start with this chapter. Oh, no, I'm going to start with this chapter. I think I did that for about however many chapters there are. Uh, it was just great to see that there was this, this wide range of information from you know, self-injurious behaviors to picky eating to addiction and some of those things. Um, what's your vision for how clinicians can use this book um, for, for the families and the, and the uh, clients they're supporting? That's a good question. We had the chapters across the disorder groups in that, like that second section of the book structured similarly so that there is um, discussion of the research base for treatment options and for assessment. Um, in other words, what is the current state of evidence-based assessment and treatment for said condition like self-harm? Um, but as we indicated earlier, um, there is so much variability across these areas, across these disorders. So we can, for instance, say with much more confidence what are the guidelines for treating an anxiety disorder as it co-occurs in autism than we can for PTSD or for um, even depression in, in autism um, because of the state of the research. So it's it's not a treatment manual, but there's information on where to go for resources on treatment within each chapter. And with a relevant case study also to try and um, give an example that might bring some of that to life for the clinician. I mean, I guess the ideal in, in my mind, if someone had the time, would be to read the whole thing. <laughs> um, but it's kind of a long book, so that might be be tough. Um, so, so I think there are some chapters like in the beginning about a conceptual framework for understanding co-occurring conditions, and at the end um, there's some 
summary sort of synthesis chapters on current clinical practices um, that might be where a clinician would want to start. And then I could see someone choosing to read a chapter if a patient comes to see them and has, you know, XYZ symptoms, then they would pick a chapter that seems to cover those topics. That makes sense. I mean, that that was how I envisioned it, um, just from, you know, from from a clinician's perspective, you know, certainly... Yeah. I don't. I I won't pretend to know everything, but I I want to be able to find an answer, um, even if it's even if the answer is go and talk to this professional or go and talk to these professionals. Um, I think that's still an answer for parents. I think that's still beneficial. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's realistic for any professional really to become an expert in autism and every possible co-occurring condition out there. I think that would be that would be that would be tough. <laughs> Um, but it is important to know um, how how to talk about it, what you might need to refer people for, and have some sense of um, of what is considered current best practice. So that's where I think you know it would be helpful to be able to refer to a kind of resource like this. For both of you, I th- you know I'm hearing that a lot of self education is needed. I mean I I think about the average clinician and they have you know, their specialty or their skill set, you know, maybe they are a uh, a speech pathologist or maybe they're an occupational therapist or, or similarly to myself, they're um, a behavior analyst. Some of the, some of these topics are a little bit outside of that. So what, what are ways in addition to this, uh, in, in addition to this handbook, what are ways that they can get ongoing education about sort of some of these mental health concerns and things along those lines? So ongoing education, how do clinicians kind of keep abreast of this ever-changing research landscape? Um, I, I think my, the first thing I think of is um, obviously the continuing education on specific topics. So one thing that I have alluded to before is the need for kind of more of a research focus on the sustainability of effect with our best interventions. Um, one thing that's plagued ASD clinical research for years is even when we do find when we do find an effect, very often the research shows it is not sustainable in the long term, and we need to understand why that is and think of how can we make modifications or adaptations to make that more effective. I think second is my opinion is for a long time clinicians who don't work regularly with clients with ASD think that they cannot, should not, or don't feel comfortable treating people who have ASD, even when the reason for referral is not related to autism. It might be the social anxiety disorder, for instance. And I I would encourage clinicians to think about some of the, there's a few articles that have come out in recent years um, and um, in this book as well as other resources on it doesn't it doesn't mean you can't treat that client. Yeah, you might need to do a few things differently. But just because the person also has autism, it shouldn't be an automatic referral out. And I think the third part is um there are some organizations now that are really doing wonderful uh, professional training on an annual basis. The ones that come to mind is um, the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, which has a huge membership in social work and uh, clinical psychology and school psychology. They have an extremely active uh, special interest group that's focused on 
autism, and most of the work in that area is on how do we assess and treat co-occurring problems. That's so great. I mean, it's so important for, I think, clinicians to be communicating with each other also. You know, in addition to what you're saying, it's it's not just... I know I know my thing, and I'll send everyone else out because I just don't know where to send them. It's sometimes we yeah. just got to sit and, and have a conversation. Um, you know, if if if, uh, if I have a client that's talking to their you know their doctor about medications, or they're talking to whomever it may be, I want to make sure that we're a part of that conversation as well, so we can be adjusting our data collection, or we can be monitoring and potentially providing feedback about what's happening. Right. Um, we may be seeing things that parents aren't and vice versa. I think it really comes down to this is like a, a team-centered approach, right? It has to be a little bit of information from everybody and a lot of information from everybody so that we can address, really, we're talking about the whole the whole child, the whole client, the whole person. Uh, what do they need from each of their, you know, ac- across all of the behaviors, across all of the mental health issues? What do they need just in their day to be successful? I think that collaboration piece is something we have to always keep in mind as well. Right, I totally agree with that. And the other thing is I don't think it's feasible for clinicians to always refer out because there isn't always a referral option. And I think that's one of our biggest um, barriers in the field is that there aren't, there aren't enough um, clinicians to meet the need. And, and there, there are some places in the country or um, lots of places in the country where there just aren't um, any clinicians who feel comfortable working with patients with autism and co-occurring conditions, which is why I just wanted to echo that, Susan's point, that it's really important to not just say, oh, oh, this patient has autism, I, therefore I cannot see him or her. It's interesting, as we're having this conversation, one of the things I'm hearing um, I'm, you know, from my perspective is I'm thinking about an average clinician who is solely working with children with autism or teens or young adults with autism. And I'm thinking that they're going to be referring out for the mental health aspect. And one of the things I'm hearing from you is the kind of the uh, the opposite, right? The, the person who's coming um, for mental health support that has autism that, but either way, there's still that barrier, right? We don't have, there's not a, there are very few professionals who have both experiences and, I think it just shows how needed a book like this really is um, and how there's just this this lacking, this dearth of information for families, for clinicians, for everybody involved about really what it takes um, to be able to support all these needs across the autism spectrum and across all these other, you know, comorbid diagnoses and things like that. Well put. I agree. So along those lines, um, Susan, I have a question for you. What should... What should parents be aware of with re- with respect to uh, psychiatric comorbidities? What should they be looking for? I guess first is I would just I would hope that parents recognize that comorbidity in terms of um, and that's just for everybody listening uh, when two or more uh, conditions uh, occur in the person at the same time. Um, that's what we're referring to as comorbidity. There's some confusion about the term given the word morbid is in it. It has nothing to do with death. Um, but anyway, it's... Thank you it's, for explaining that. I appreciate that. Co- it's, it's pervasive and common but not uniform, meaning, yeah, we are um, in general agreement that the risk for comorbidity increases with age. It's more common in people who are without co-occurring intellectual disability. Um, there's some indication that there's a gender effect, too, across different disorders in terms of risk for comorbidity. Um 
Um, but I think what's most important for parents to just be aware of is the the diagnosis, the label of ASD, which is often applied in early childhood, is often not the primary focus of treatment throughout the lifespan. And I think this is especially true as children enter into adolescence. Then that's, I would say it's probably more common for concerns and referrals to arise because of these secondary conditions. So bottom line is I, I would say just we, we really be, need to be careful about attributing what we see in terms of a behavioral concern to the autism when it might be something else that we could successfully treat in a, in a time-limited way. Do you have an example that you could give us? Uh, an example of that, yeah. Um, for me, the, and this is partly because of it's what I have done the most research in is anxiety disorders. They're, just like in neurotypical people, we see a progression of anxiety disorders from specific phobia to social anxiety to GAD. Of course, not in every person, not in every case, but that's like across populations, like the general developmental progression we see. And, and what that tells me and what I have seen clinically is a lot of times if we can work with the anxiety in a, um, a targeted preventive way, we might actually have a nice carryover effect that can help that child uh, head off development of some other type of anxiety. If we can get in there and teach the skills and help the parent also with, with um, accommodations, meaning so, so that parents aren't overly accommodating to the anxiety and inadvertently feeding the beast. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, in terms of identifying the co-occurring conditions, I think one of the things we really think about is a change from baseline. So, um, yes, there's difficulties that the child or adult is having because of their autism spectrum disorder, but is there any sort of marked change in their mood, in their sleep, in their um, activity level? And usually when there's a change, it's it's time to think about what, what's happening. Is it a medical thing? Is it a, a psychiatric condition? Is there something going on in the environment um, that's happening? So I think one of the things parents can do is, you know, know your child and, you, and be confident that you know your child and speak up if something seems, seems different, like worse, worsening of, symptoms that they already had um, or new symptoms or change in, in personality or behavior. Um, and then the other point I just wanted to make, which, which might be complicating the picture because it's kind of the flip, coin, flip side of the coin that Susan was talking about, um, we don't want to miss co-occurring conditions when, we're, when they're there, um, but oftentimes we do see in autism that kids get tons of different diagnoses thrown at them, um, and it's not really necessary. Um, so I think it's just important to think about um, just being sure that you're treating whatever the issue is. And maybe it's emotion dysregulation, but we don't need to call it bipolar disorder, and it's not appropriate to call it bi bipolar disorder. Um, like we see that, that sort of situation arise um, frequently, I think, in clinical practice. And does that come from just this, you know, general lack of understanding of both sides, the, the, the mental health concern and, the, and, like, the autism diagnosis? Does that come from just people being, you know, I feel like there's an overdiagnosis that happens just when people are like, ah, I'm not sure, here, I'll put this label on it. Is, 
Is that what you're seeing a little bit? I think that's definitely part of it. Um, and I think sometimes it's driven by insurance needing to bill for something. Um, but but I agree with you that there's that lack of, there can be a, a lack of comfort or or maybe it's a comfort with using a certain diagnosis that makes sense to you um, or not knowing not knowing exactly how to go about trying to differentiate two different diagnoses. And that that is, I think, a real struggle for even the most experienced clinicians sometimes is, is determining is there truly an additional disorder? If so, what is it? Um, that, that's definitely an area where we need to improve um, moving forward in terms of guidance for differential diagnosis. Um, that's that's why we sort of rely on that. Is there a change from baseline? Is a really good first step indicator. To think I about. like that concept that that change of baseline. I mean, you know, I think about a lot of families. You know, if your son or daughter is two years old and and they're they're not talking or pointing or doing some of those things, you recognize that there's that there's something not not happening that should be happening or maybe it's happening in you know, your other nieces and nephews or other children around the family or whatever it may be. And I think sometimes people forget that, like, as as kids grow, they're going to have changes in their, you know, their, their body chemistry, their sleep habits, um, their eating habits, all those things. I mean, for any of us, being a teenager was hard enough. Throw in some of these diagnoses and all of a sudden it becomes really overwhelming, right? So, I think what you said was really great, really poignant about just know your child, know when things are happening, pay attention, talk to them, um, you know, go out for ice cream. I don't know. I'm making up an example, but go out for ice cream and just chat and see how things are going. Sometimes they'll open up and make sure you're building that relationship early and not waiting until there's something wrong and then asking what's wrong. Make sure you're doing the check-ins when things are okay so that when something's wrong, they'll come to you. So I know you both have uh, a million other research projects going on, uh, and I know you each are turning out research and, and doing other topics and things like that. Is there What other information should families know about you and about what you're doing on a day-to-day basis? Sure. Well, one of our other projects is another shared project. Um, Susan and I have um, been involved in a program we developed together with Caitlin Connor and Kelly Beck called the Emotion Awareness and Skills Enhancement, or EASE program. So that's um, a mindfulness-based intervention to target emotion regulation um, that we we developed with the idea that if emotion regulation impairment is underlying a lot of these different difficulties that we see, that maybe if we can improve that, that we will see changes in um, reduced depression, reduced anxiety, reduced aggression, and overall improved functioning. Um, so we have been working on this for the past several years. We had a successful small pilot trial with some adolescents um, with autism spectrum disorder and are now halfway through um, a randomized controlled trial where we're comparing our new intervention ease to individualized supportive therapy in 12 to 21-year-olds who are verbal with autism. And we're just recently started a new um, pilot trial of a version of ease um, with um, adolescents and young adults who also have co-occurring intellectual disability. So that that project keeps us both pretty busy, um, but we're excited about that. 
And then and so what is what is sorry, I have a question. What um if I if my uh if my son or daughter or, or one of my clinicians uh is going to see a program, what does it look like? What is it what does a day look like for the for the the uh patients accessing this program? Um well it's an individualized weekly therapy. Um so they they come in once a week to the clinic, although we're always both thinking about how we can disseminate that to make it more easily accessible once we're done with this trial. Um, and then they would, we have a consistent structure in every individual um, therapy session where, um, like, for example, starting and ending with a mindfulness practice, um, learning a new skill in between. Um, and then we build in things like more real-world practice, um, trying to practice these skills in situations that most cl- closely mimic um, they're real, where they really struggle day to day, and that could even be um, out in the community for those sessions. It kind of goes back to something I had mentioned a while ago that, you know, the vast majority of the treatment research is focused on um, distilling and somewhat adapting uh, evidence-based treatments for other disorders to that disorder when it's present in a person with autism, and ease is the, the flip of that. Of, of, okay, this is a, a theoretically based, and um, through primarily Carla's own research on understanding and assessing emotion dysregulation as it presents in autism, uh, we're now doing the other side of this, of saying if we know the mechanism, how can we develop a parsimonious approach that will treat the range of co-occurring disorders without worrying, oh, this is just for anxiety and not for depression. So the, I think a big premise of ease and what we try to train a person to do is, is sit with the discomfort of intense emotion and tolerate it. Um, and this stems from research um, that shows that a lot of the problem, not all of it, is a quick button, you know, a highly reactive uh, behavioral tendency when an intense emotion is there. So a little, a little bit more of thinking uh, longer term and working through some of those emotions in the moment as opposed to how do I get this feeling to go away right now? How do I get out of this, this exact moment and move on into something a little less stressful potentially? Yeah, it's like it's trying to stay in control in the face of really strong negative emotion. And then the, the other part of that is we really try and emphasize, even for almost half of the entire intervention, is focused on increasing their own awareness of changing intensity of emotion so that they do pick up on some of the cues earlier before they're at that 100 where it's really hard to regulate once you're exploding, right? So the idea is to start to notice sooner and sooner so that you can more proactively do something about it. Yeah, I can't I can't wait until I'm at peak escalation to then try to use some of my coping strategies or calming methods, I need to start doing that when I'm at a 7 out of 10 or a 5 out of 10 as opposed to 9 out of 10 because by then it's potentially a little bit too late, right? Right. That's great. What a what a great uh, a great technique. I like that, that mindfulness piece of it. I think that's something that's that so many people are, just general people are missing. We all could use more mindfulness. We all could just take a minute and say, how am I doing right now? What is... What am I feeling? What are my emotions telling me? And actually listening to ourselves, I think it would be it would be nice for everybody. I kind of want I want to come and be a fly on the wall. <laughs> I always say I need to practice what I preach, and oh, I wish I could give this to my kids. 
Yeah, everyone use mindfulness. I agree. Right. Well, thank you both so much. Um, I appreciate you both taking up, letting us take up a bunch of your time. Um, Can you tell us a little bit, tell us uh, the Oxford Handbook of Autism and Co-Occurring Psychiatric Conditions. Uh, When is it coming out and where can we find it? Last we were told it should be, it's literally at the printer and it's supposed to be on bookshelves in March. We don't know when in March. So, so I guess check Amazon. <laughs> Great. And where can, uh, where can we find each of you and your ongoing research? So I'm at the University of Alabama. Uh, this is Susan. Um, and I direct the Center for Youth Development and Intervention here. Um, and our website is cydi.ua.edu. And I'm at the University of Pittsburgh and direct the regulation of emotion and ASD adults, children's, and teens program. Um, and our website is www.react with two A's, so R E A A C T dot pit dot edu. But you can find it if you just write regular React, it'll still pop up. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you both. Um, We appreciate your time. We appreciate the work that you're doing, and uh, what a great handbook that's going to be an excellent tool for clinicians, for parents, for anyone involved in supporting the the autism community. We we appreciate all that you've put into this and the time and energy that went into it. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you, Richie. Have a good day. All right. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Uh, It's great to know that this research is happening for a variety of reasons. For me personally, knowing that teens and young adults are getting this type of focus is fantastic because I spend a lot of time with those age groups, but also because I feel like those age groups are really underrepresented, both from a research perspective and from a services perspective. If you have a show suggestion, we would love to hear from you. Reach out to us at allautismtalk at learnbehavioral.com or find us on Facebook and Instagram at Autism Therapies. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.